Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. It's February 1922. Amateur radio hams badger the British government to allow broadcasting. The job lands on the desk of one Peter Pendleton Eckersley. His ragtab team of boffins design radios for aeroplanes. But in their spare time, now they must work out what, whom, wherein, which and under, and however they will send this out to the nation from a hut in a muddy field in a small Essex village. And they'll plan all this from the pub. This time we revisit 2MT Rittle, Britain's first regular radio station, from the Cock and Bell pub via its first wonky shows to the magical moment when the chief has one drink too many, grabs the mic and doesn't let go. This episode contains gin and tonic, mock opera, oh and historian Tim Wonder. After all, he knows this story better than anyone. This is the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling... This is London Calling. Well, hello, hello. Welcome back. Hello, it's Paul Carenza here. This is the podcast about 100 years of British broadcasting. Still no BBC yet in our story, but it edges ever nearer. Last time we met Peter Eckersley and team. This time we're going to hear him in action. Well, we heard him in action last time. And he's going to break some records. I mean, he will literally break some gramophone records and damage a gramophone player. How was he ever allowed near the microphone? This man's a liability. But he also gives us the British Broadcasting Company and indeed the corporation, as we know it. We had a tweet from listener Phil Steer. Hello, Phil. He noted how much Eckersley sounds like The Goon Show, 30 years ahead of its time. Amazing, he said. And if you thought he sounded like The Goon Show last week, then you wait until this week's show, which serves sort of as a part two to last week's part one. This time we're going to zoom in more on the show itself and exactly how it influenced broadcasting to come. Indeed, in years to come, in fact, Eckersley's waywardness will be his undoing at the BBC, but that's all ahead, many series ahead, in fact. While we're whizzing back and forth, let's whiz back a few episodes. Do you remember Captain H.J. Round of episode two, and he also cropped up last week? Well, we've had an email from David Jervis. He is the grandson, in fact, of Captain Round. And I also believe another grandchild of Captain Round has been listening to the podcast too. If you are a descendant of any of the people we've been mentioning on the podcast, then an especial greeting to you. David said, I'm working my way through your British Broadcasting Century podcast, starting off, of course, with the one that mentions my grandfather, Captain H.J. Round. Absolutely love what I've heard. Thank you so much. And he sent uh, an article he wrote about his grandfather, Much of it we dealt with early on, so I won't repeat too much. You know, pioneer of radio, he started the ball rolling on air traffic control, radar, sonar, broadcasting and everything. But here's a nice little extra. David says in his article, I was even more astonished and delighted that my grandfather was one of the engineers responsible for creating the microphone used in the first outside broadcast of a songbird. How about that? Nowadays, we take for granted the noises that come from Attenborough masterpieces, from Spring Watch, Autumn Watch, Winter Watch, and myriad other nature programmes. But there was a time where there were no such programmes. Renowned cellist Beatrice Harrison played her magical instrument in her garden on May 19th, 1924, and the BBC recorded a nightingale singing nearby. A duet between a nightingale and a cello. All made possible because of the advances made by my grandfather, David Jervis says, in the development of microphones from those that produced a distant telephone-like quality to the miracle of the Marconi Sykes magnetophone, able to pick up clearly the sounds of birds and buzzing insects. So I'll stop there uh, because we're going to get to the nightingale and the cello in a couple of series time. Best guess, maybe 20 episodes ahead. 
It is a cracking tale, and I didn't know that Captain Round actually made the microphone for it, but I'm not surprised. Of course he did. Captain Round's name, he's going to pop up again and again as we start the BBC, because H.J. Uh, Round made many of the first microphones and transmitters for the BBC, for 2LO in London, and for this entire British broadcasting industry's birth. So thank you, David and family. What a granddad you had. Last word from David. My grandfather died in August 1966, still inventing to the end. For a while he lived in Potter's Bar and used to take me on the train to his laboratory in Islington full of valves and transistors and oscilloscopes. We would count the seconds as we travelled through the dark railway tunnels and from that he seemed to be able to work out distance and speed and it seemed to a youngster the answers to many other mysteries of science and life. And so to the story of broadcasting, back when Captain Round was back in Ireland at this point at the Marconi station there, but we are in Essex at this point in a sleepy village with an amazing story. Last time we left the job on the desk of Captain Eckersley's team. The team are forced to broadcast out of work hours. There's no extra money or resources. Just do this thing called broadcasting. Help satisfy the radio hams. What went wrong? What went right? How did it kickstart the entire British broadcasting industry? Let's find out. Hello, CQ. Hello, CQ. This is 2 Emma Talk Rittle Testing. This is 2 Emma Talk Rittle Testing. Hello, CQ. Hello, CQ, indeed. Well, CQ was the Marconi term for calling international listeners in, requesting them to listen and, in the olden days, in fact, even respond. Although here, of course, now radio is no longer two-way as such. There was little opportunity to respond. You would be lucky to get a word in when Captain Eckersley took over the mic. But he did not take over the mic to start with. To begin with, he's in charge of the team, but 2MT Riddle is a peaceful, formal, simple broadcast station. No rolling of R's, no Eckersley on the mic. In fact, he was at home listening in. Now it's his deputy, Noel Ashbridge, who, at first at least, delivers the rather stilted announcements. Here is a gramophone record. Here is another gramophone record. Here is another gramophone record. Because they are doing everything by the book. The orders came down from HQ that on Valentine's Day 1922, just two weeks' notice, they would broadcast to the nation or at least over a few dozen miles of the nation to start with. And anyone who has a crystal set with its temperamental cat's whisker helping you listen in, not an actual cat's whisker, should point it out, they could all hear it. This is for amateur radio hams, remember, to help calibrate their sets. Nothing more at this stage. But by the end of this episode, that's all going to change. So it'll begin with telegraphy, that's dots and dashes, and then give a few minutes of telephony, speech and music. So far, so simple. Craziness yet to come. Here's broadcasting historian Tim Wonder. The call sign 2MA Talk, 2MT Rittle testing, goes online at, at exactly 7 o'clock in the evening on the February 14th. And for the first six weeks, it is incredibly dry. First of all, it was very formal, extremely formal. There were gramophone records. They were put on and we shut down for three minutes to see if we were interfering with legitimate services. Why we were illegitimate, I don't know. The team, as we mentioned last week, included a couple of future BBC chief engineers and several future senior engineers. There was also a Mr Trump, no relation, who stayed at this little hut in Rittle in Essex for 40 years after and didn't follow Eckersley and the others to the BBC. Mr Trump married the daughter of the pub landlord. Uh, he ran the Cock and Bell pub, where Mr Trump and some of the other engineers took rooms. Another daughter of the pub landlord was Betty Beeson. She was the one woman on the Rittle team. She was secretary to Eckersley, and it was her that helped them borrow the pub piano for their broadcasts, and also bagged them a pre-show fish and chip supper at the pub. A few others were on the small team. There's a Mr Barber, Mr Russell. Personally, I imagine the Dad's Army characters in that army hut, only a bit younger and more boffin-like. 
This hut has no toilet. In fact, for a while, it's a gramophone horn in a hedge that provides the outside urinal. It's next to a tethered goat, described as the most grounded goat in the country, thanks to the electricity going through the stake, and an occasional biplane that often appeared in the field for the team to tinker with the radio for their day job. So that is the backdrop of this bizarre team and Britain's first regular broadcasting. And it's Eckersley's number two, Noel Ashbridge, who builds the transmitter they need. And here he is reminiscing about it 38 years later in 1960. Although I was allegedly supposed to be chief assistant to Captain Eckersley at the time, I was the dog's body for several weekends running, building this transmitter, literally out of bits that we looked round and collected on the shelves. And indeed, each week they disassemble most of the transmitter, return the parts to whatever they're useful for in the week, and then rebuild the transmitter every Tuesday, ready for this novel thing called broadcasting. It's not the weekly work, this is after hours. The very first programme on Valentine's Day 1922 is assembled, rigidly by top brass. Actually, the programme material came from Arthur Burroughs, who was the chief publicity man at uh, Marconi House, and he used to send down the records, and he used to send down, I suppose, about every other week, an artist. And so, week one of Britain's first regular broadcast station features a live singer. Robert Howe came, though, a very famous singer. Yes, the first song on regular British broadcast radio was the floral dance, to be covered 56 years later by Terry Wogan. You would know him by five of the names because he was under contract to a record company, so he actually had to have a pseudonym to sing for Riddle on that night. And again, that problem of copyright and singer's rights will echo through the next hundred years. You think about a comedian who could travel for 10 years on the vaudeville circuit with an act that would make him a living. He does it for one night on radio, a million people listen, it's over. It still echoes through today when you have the comics who do a tour and then we'll put it online afterwards. Yes, as a comedian, I have had that dilemma to put stuff on TV or not. Now, I'm not saying that's why you don't see me on Live at the Apollo. But I will say that you can see my regular weekly evening show on Facebook Live in this current lockdown situation. Facebook.com slash Paul.Carenza, K-E-R-E-N-S-A, slash live. Do join me every Tuesday, 8pm. Because as 2MT Riddle found in 1922, Tuesdays at 8pm is a good time to put on a regular weekly show. But I digress. February 14th, 1922, Robert Howe went on to sing a dialect ballad. A piece of music called The Lost Chord was played on the cello. And then the gramophone records sent down from Marconi HQ in London. But it was not a good show. It started with a bang. The first concert was a disaster. The equipment exploded. They replaced a capacitor with something that was 100,000 times the wrong value, so it was a very squeaky concert, the first one. One of the brightest sparks on this brilliant team, Harold Kirk, was the one who spotted the problem. Now, whether that was the entire problem, though, it was a muffled broadcast, and indeed top brass were there. The Times, who, in fact, as this episode lands, have been on air about a week or so with Times Radio, by chance, yeah, they reviewed the event. They said, A medley of spasmodic noises, the floral dance was faintly audible. In a week when I've read BBC reviews of Times Radio, it's nice that 98 years on, the tables have turned from when the Times reviewed the pre-BBC. But back at 2MT in Rittle, the end of their first programme was scarcely heard by anybody. People tuned in, they just couldn't hear much. The signal was terrible. And for several weeks, this broadcast problem endured. Certainly into week two, we gave you a hint of this show last week with song choices like Kashmir Song, The Swan, Il Baccio, 
You might notice that not only these, but almost all of the songs we've featured on this podcast so far, which are the actual songs played at the time, they're not very jazzy yet. The jazz age, the roaring 20s, it's not quite underway yet. It's certainly not as jazzy as our own brilliant musical stings for this podcast. Thank you to Will Farmer for composing and producing that. And the clarinet is played by Adam Smith of winsmith.co.uk. So thank you, Adam. Yeah, our music is much jazzier than the music radio was playing back in the pre-BBC days. The Charleston was still on its way. You've got to wait till 1923 for that. And Prohibition's only just started in the US at this point. So the jazz age and speakeasies and all that, well, jazz, I was going to say, is a year or two away. So right now, it's highbrow songs, in fact, chosen by Arthur Burroughs, and he's got a taste for light opera, not fun, jovial, populist pub songs. And so many of Arthur Burroughs' choices are ignored by Eckersley and his engineering team. They would pour over the planned playlist. Too many plosive P's there for a podcast. Oh yes, like all good radio shows, they would be planned in the pub. Here's one of Eckersley's team, the delightfully posh fellow future chief engineer of the BBC, the Honourable Rowley Wynne. We then went across to a pub called the Cock and Bell, where in a short space of time we drank an immense amount of gin. The time entirely depended upon how long Sir Noel's bicycle took to start. It was a thing which he used to kick and half the time he got pum 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 out of it and nothing more. Well, we then proceeded to produce the programme. And with the help of gin and or the most ghastly piece of fried fish which is always stuck to the plate, we produced the programme of the evenings. So this is a record-breaking station, largely because, yes, they broke some gramophone records. They chucked them out the window. Well, metaphorically chucked them out the window. But one thing that does get smashed, apart from the engineers on their pre-show gins, is the gramophone itself. You see, Arthur Burroughs in London, he's arranged a sponsorship deal. A cliftophone gramophone player from Chapel's Piano Company... They would provide the player for half price, and in exchange, the Riddle announcer would mention between the songs that these are being played on a cliftophone. Shocking to think of such a promotional thing on a pre-BBC radio station. Well, despite Burroughs' best laid plans, it rarely quite happened like that, because Burroughs would send the cliftophone in a specially made protective box and everything by train, and it seemingly got damaged in transit, or on arrival, more likely. In fact, some people say it ended up on the fire. There's a strongly worded letter of complaint from Chapel's piano company to Burroughs at Marconi House. And funnily enough, almost everything that Burroughs sends to Eckersley either never arrives or arrives broken or can't be found. It's almost like the Riddle team don't want to play by his rules. Into week three and programme three, and we're still in Fustian dry territory for the 2MT Riddle station. The exciting days are yet to come. Now, Tim Wonder has researched this and he says that show three is a wedding special. February the 28th, Princess Mary and the Earl of Harewood got married and the ceremony was recorded on gramophone record. The Chapel Piano Company, they want to cash in, so they send a copy to Riddle with this to be read out. We will now give you on the cliftophone number five a selection of Princess Mary's wedding music played at Westminster Abbey today. The records have been specially prepared by the Columbia Gramophone Company Limited and its title is Handel's Water Music Suite. Again, the cliftophone doesn't arrive... There's another letter of complaint, and Burroughs again reassures the sponsor that delays to delivery have been outside of his control. But uh, could they have another gramophone, please? And that broadcast fault, well, that's still there since week one, so it's not going brilliantly. No one can puzzle out this signal problem. There are complaints from listeners. The engineers have tried everything. Even good old Bill Ditcham, that train timetable reader extraordinaire from our episode two, even he comes down from Chelmsford to try and fix it. 
Ditchum checks the transmitter circuit while Eckersley goes ah! into the microphone. It's Harold Kirk who eventually finds what was up and it was sort of his fault to begin with. That broken capacitor that you may remember he replaced after that first bang. Well, the new capacitor he put in was a hundred times too powerful. You blame the poor labelling on the box at the time. So weeks it's been there distorting the signal. Kirk fixes it, the quality improves, they never mention it on air, and reports arrive of much better reception. Now, one listener at home, just for those first few weeks, has been Peter Eckersley himself. He's in charge, but once the show's set up, he prefers to be a listener to begin with. And Eckersley used to go home on his motorbike. He lived in Whittam in Essex. In fact, what is today? Weatherspoons. Um, he lives in their building there and listened in. Well, he's the only one of the team who's actually married. The rest are bachelors. They're happier to stay late than Eckersley. And besides, he's the boss. So he listens in at home with his wife and the chickens in the garden. And it's still not a good show. Something has to change. Eckersley said they were dry, they were boring, they were annoying. So we think it was March the 23rd, 1922. He comes to Ritley, he goes, I'm staying. I used to go home and let the others do the transmissions, but one time I stayed and had some dinner at the local. They go to the Cock and Bell pub where they did the planning. The pub piano is pushed down the lane. It was never in tune. They have a, a very large sort of fish and chips in the Cock and Bell pub was apparently extraordinarily good. They then have an awful lot of gin and tonic. I think more gin than tonic. And then I sort of suddenly felt that perhaps this formality was a little bit much. They stagger down the lane and Eckersley walks to the microphone. There are moments in history when the world changes. There was a moment in March 1920 when Winifred Sayer becomes the first lady of Singapore British Radio. June the 15th, 1920, Melba walks to the microphone and shows the world what is possible. Now it's Eckersley's turn in, in March 1922. He starts to talk. Hello, CQ. Hello, CQ. This and is several things happen. Hello. The first thing with Eckersley is he's a natural at the microphone. Is that all right, Ash? Kirk, is it, is, it, is it all right? He was sat in this you hut, sure? very you chilly, sure? in March 1922. I'm blasting. Hello, CQ, I'm blasting. You want a blast? I blast a whole lot. But he could imagine but, all his listeners huddled around their firesides all over, uh, well, all over England into uh, Northern Europe. Well, I mean, how are you tonight? And he spoke to them as if they were in the room with him. And st- picked up the microphone, um, jabbered. I'm afraid... Um, didn't uh, shut down for any three minutes. Was a bit rather... Serious things have happened this evening. The rules were that every seven minutes you shut down for three minutes to listen in case the government tell you to stop broadcasting. We did expect to uh, get uh, some rather famous singer. He missed the usual uh, shutdown time after half an hour. Well, she failed. Singers failed, you know. He dropped the formality. They do. He dropped the scripted and, um, instructions. We've got tonight a number of gramophone records. And he dropped the playlist as well. As usual. Not the last time presenters would go off piste, um, of course. Hello, what? But perhaps he is the first. What you say? What, Kirk? The engineers, Ashbridge, Kirk and Rollswin... Oh, it's not going out at all. Are you quite sure? They were all horrified. But it's your fault. So Eckersley went wilder. For heaven's sake, then connect it up. It fueled him on. Well, it is... Oh, it is... Hello, thank you. And this has all been going on. I'm sorry there was a big, a bit, bit understanding. A little bit of a technical hitch. Uh, yes, yes, you have them too, I know, aren't they awful? And then about an hour later, he starts singing. Dearest, the concert ended, sad wells the heterodyne. Now this would never happen where there's hierarchy, but here there's anarchy. Next morning, uh, when we came in and had a post-mortem, they, 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 all the staff sat around and said, this. I said, oh, did I say that? Oh my God. Oh, no, I didn't. No, did I really say that? Well, I expected a letter. 
I got one from head office, from Arthur Burroughs. It was very rebuking. Burroughs is most concerned that the hard-won licence from the Postmaster General is at risk. And bear in mind the Postmaster General had already closed down Chelmsford and banned radio for two years, and that was after the Melba concert that had gone very well. So what of this, when the Postmaster General's rules had been willfully flouted, overrunning, not shutting down, and all the highbrow choices not adhered to? Burroughs likely thought that it was all over by the shouting. So he did some shouting. But it was offset by a pile of postcards that said, Wonderful. Do it again. We loved it. And so we did it again. and We didn't take any notice of Arthur Burroughs. There was jokes. There was a warmth. He starts to tell silly stories. He tells spooky stories and over the next three months Eckersley not only becomes the most famous person in England but he becomes the first broadcaster the first DJ the first comedian the first impersonations the first blue jokes on radio some of them quite risque even by today's standard but he's an ex-military man and he assumes only the military are listening but they're not they're now Harrods set up a shop a whole floor where people pack in every Tuesday night to listen to Eckersley Parliament closes down. Literally, the MPs rush to their rooms to listen to the radio. The port of Liverpool stops sending and receiving ships while Rittle is on air. You cannot imagine now the change that happens. Eckersley would announce that you're listening to Station Zonk from Czechoslovakia. One of his favourites was to play records pivoted off-centre. This is three decades before The Goon Show, which is really the next time that British radio would be so wild and informal. It all paves the way for other radio entertainers and Here's a few suggested by Jamie Dyer, host of Watching the Wireless podcast. Yes, each episode we welcome your broadcast memories. And oh, we've got a better title now as well. James Cooper. Hello, James. He's tweeted us at BB Century. That's where you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. James suggested we call it AM, Airwave Memories. Yes, I like that. So this week's AM, Airwave Memories, some comedy heritage. This is Jamie Dyer from Bognor Regis. My earliest British broadcasting memory has to be Bruce Forsyth on the National Lottery Show in the mid-90s. There was something about this older performer that really entranced me as a child. And certainly the older performers of that era, the likes of Terry Wogan and Bob Monkhouse, were always people that I gravitated towards because they seemed extremely experienced at what they did. And certainly listening to Wogan on the radio in my early teens. Um, it was something about his wit. And certainly Monkhouse, he was very much inspired by American comedy, which is something that these days I'm extremely enthusiastic about. And certainly great British radio um, institutions like Hancock's Half Hour owe something of a debt to American shows like the Jack Benny program, which aired first on the Forces network in the early 40s, then making its way to the home service. So knowing that those people that I used to look up to as a child were inspired by those shows, it all ties together quite nicely. Thanks for letting me share that with you. Thank you, Jamie. Jamie Dyer hosts Watching the Wireless. It's a great new podcast about radio, and there aren't many of us. So if you like this podcast, I'm sure you will like his. And the comedy family tree that he talks about there, from Jack Benny to Bob Monkhouse and so many others, all Wogan, Brucey, I would say what unites so many of those entertainers is they make it seem effortless. You'd never think of Wogan as a comedian, but my word, he was funnier than any of his guests, wasn't he? I think that long line goes right back to this chap. 
Tim Wonder. So, I mean, it goes right back to Peter Eckersley, but here's Tim Wonder speaking about Peter Eckersley. You got that, right? Eckersley, whatever he could think of, he put on the radio. The night of Grand Opera has, has become famous. Eckersley couldn't sing and he certainly couldn't play the piano, but he told his audience they were going to receive opera live from Rome, which was technically impossible in 1922. Tonight, we have a most marvellous thing that's going to happen. We are going to receive Rome, that famous Italian tenor, that famous Italian tenor, what's his name? Gridlico is going to sing Non Puto Ferrari Pantissimo, which being translated means um, it's very difficult. Now we're going to receive it. There may be some atmospherics. There may be some, there may be some jamming. There may be some oscillation. Whew, but hang on, CQ, we're just going to receive With clackers, milk bottles hanging from the roof, he recreates this opera singer. Now, I'm sorry to break the illusion for a moment. These clips are not 1922 originals. They are Peter Eckersley, but the earliest clips in existence of the BBC are from about 1928-ish. Royal broadcasts, that sort of thing. They just didn't or couldn't easily record things back then. No, this is Peter Eckersley recreating his old show in 1932. Anytime you hear any old BBC recordings, whether it's Arthur Burroughs saying, This is 2LO, the London station of the British Broadcasting Company calling. Or Big Ben's bongs. It's from at least six years into the BBC's life at best. I'm sorry to break it to you, but I feel it's good to know. This is London calling. Because also it's part of the story. In fact, playing in recordings were frowned upon at the time. There was a genuine feeling that listeners might feel cheated if they were listening to something pre-recorded. So instead, they would rather have the original people recreate it live. Either way, this is still Peter Eckersley himself doing exactly what Peter Eckersley did. Just ten years later. You have to put yourself back in 1922... Eckersley knew the rules, so he insulted his own bosses, the directors at Marconi Company. He blamed all the bad weather on the Icelandic government. A deep depression has formed over Chelmsford today. It's raining in Rittler. I blame Iceland. And the Icelandic government actually wrote to the British government and tried to have him sacked. But Eckersley was, by this time, fireproof. The thing which really shocked me was a little incident when, one night, Captain Eckersley was late. Eight o'clock arrived, he didn't turn up. Well, there's quite always we played the usual Coleridge-Taylor record, which always seemed to be there. And um, about ten minutes after we'd started, PPE arrived, and he seized the microphone from one of us. I think we were reciting If or something at the time. And he said, Hello, CQ, hello, CQ, Eckersley here. Um, I'm sorry I'm a little late, but I was called to be interviewed by head office. And um, on the way back, uh, uh, the train was late. It was a quarter of an hour late getting into Chelmsford. Uh, It was said that there was a fog on the line. Well, of course, there wasn't a fog on the line, he said. Uh, Porter only has to breathe on the line at Stratford, and the London North Eastern runs late for the next fortnight. (laughs) Well, uh, so we all duly said, ha-ha. And uh, about two days later, there was a most frightful rocket from Arthur Burroughs. Well, we we dismissed that as well. Well, the man hasn't got any sense of humour. Hmm, Burroughs. He is still not happy with Eckersley. What will that provoke Burroughs into doing next? Something huge for the story of the BBC, but for that, you will have to wait until next episode. And that's how probably the first regular broadcasting station in Britain ever started. There was one before it. I'm a little jealous about the one that preceded it. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm talking about regular broadcasting, and gee, boy, were we regular. We were, we were half an hour a week, half an hour a week, every Tuesday. 
and um, we just broadcast, that's all. And this, from February to May in 1922, is, if not in name, the British Broadcasting Company, sort of. No one called it that because the company was actually Marconi's, but it was the only broadcaster at the time. 2MT Riddle will come to an end in January the following year, 1923, as the only legal rival to broadcast at the same time as the BBC until commercial radio appears decades later. So something else will need to come along to form old Auntie Beeb. Another radio station will be born. A rival to 2MT Riddle. Well, good night, CQ. God bless you and keep you. I can't. God bless you. Goodbye. Goodbye. So next time that rival station appears, voiced and run by whom? Their old friend, grumpy letter writer, programme planner and Marconi publicity boss, Arthur Burroughs. Next time on the British Broadcasting Century. Before we go, if you would consider supporting the podcast, do visit coffee.com, that's ko-fi.com, slash Paul Carenza to tip me a cup of coffee. I won't spend it on coffee, if I'm honest. I will spend it on web hosting for this podcast uh, because this entire enterprise costs me the price of about three to four cups of coffee a month. If you'd be willing to buy one of those coffees now and then, you will keep us on air. And that's got to be a good feeling. Or you can go to patreon.com slash paulcarenza to discover perks and benefits for regular help. I send out advanced things and exclusive things to the merry band who have signed up to Patreon. Thank you to Tim Wonder. He will return now and then over the series. And thank you for listening and for sharing, if you would, and rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, wherever you found this. Those reviews do really genuinely actually help people see them. They try the podcast, more jump on board. And even if you can't help fund us, maybe those new people you have found for us might. And then I will go on about it less. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer and the clarinet is by Adam Smith. Archive clips are either public domain or darn tricky to find the rights owners. If it's you and you don't want your clips up, do let us know. We'll remove yours forthwith. We are nothing to do with the BBC, by the way, though we do wave a flag for them and all who sail the airwaves. If that's you, keep on broadcasting. Britain's ears need you. Stay informed, educated, entertained and join us next time for 2LO on the British Broadcasting Century.